everyone. Today's pod very briefly touches on prison and incarceration, and it does so a little less critically than we'd normally like to do on this podcast. Um, So I just want to take this opportunity to also plug a fundraiser for Beyond Bricks and Bars, the Trans and Gender Diverse Decarceration Project, which is a peer-led community project that provides direct support to trans and gender diverse people in prison at risk of incarceration and those returning to their communities from prison. I'll read you a little bit uh, about what this fundraising drive is for from their page. It says, This grassroots fundraising drive is to maintain and increase support beyond bricks and bars provides trans and gender diverse people who are in prison at risk of criminalization or as they find their feet after a period of incarceration. Currently in Victoria, there are no specialised community supports for trans and gender diverse people in prison or at risk of incarceration other than this project. The money raised will facilitate the employment of a part-time social worker, which will mean that support of and for our friends and neighbours caught up in the system is funded, sustainable and provided by community in their corner. If we can secure this seed funding, we'll also have the opportunity to seek out long-term resources to keep this vital work available for those who need it now and into the future, which I think is a really important and vital goal. Um, And so I'm going to link to the fundraiser in our episode notes. I'm not affiliated with these guys in any way, but moving forward, if we're going to be talking about social justice issues on this podcast, um, even in a reasonably lighthearted way, I'm going to use that opportunity to make sure that I put my money where my mouth is um, and and put some cash towards organizations that I find to be worthwhile, while also pointing you in the same direction if you have anything to spare. So yeah, that's a little message from me. Um, So if you see messages like this into the future, that's what I'm trying to do. And as always, thanks so much for listening and uh, on with the show. I think over time this podcast is slowly morphing into a meditation on various types of guy, action guys, renaissance men, guys who love their wives even though they're divorced, guys bonded by the light homoeroticism of male striptease, guys trying to move on from their careers as boy band guys, big strong guys who I'd like to lift me up in their powerful arms, and perhaps most importantly, weird guys. I love to look at a Wikipedia page on a guy and just go, Jesus, is this allowed? I did an episode on Steven Seagal earlier this year, and I learned a lot about Japanese martial arts and the rise of kung fu cinema. To be clear, I learned a lot about each of these things separately. (laughs) I know that they're different. It's unclear if Steven Seagal does. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, that episode was prompted by a conversation with notable friend of the pod, Jamie Price, uh, who you may remember from literally the last episode. Uh, At this point, he's essentially co-producing with Wesley, and I'm paying neither of them. (laughs) And now Sydney's in lockdown, and he's done it again by being like, you should watch the film Next, starring Nicolas Cage. What's Nicolas Cage up to? (laughs) which is a great question that prompted me to do like a deep dive on Nick Cage's checkered film history, uh, his strange personal life, and the invention of the Crow Dome. Uh, This journey's had two major outcomes. The first is that at various points I've said to myself out loud, is Nick Cage hot? The answer I think objectively is no. (laughs) 
But lockdown's been long and the nights have been cold. The second outcome is that I've now watched just an obscene amount of Nicolas Cage movies in rapid succession, and I think I know what I want to talk about. I'm Alex, this is Pop Culture Boner, the podcast edition, and today I'm thinking about Nicolas Cage in the film Con Air. So unlike Steven Seagal, whose film history can really be held up against the continued Western appropriation of Eastern genre cinema into things that are barely recognisable, there's no coherent starting point for Nicolas Cage. He's done everything from Oscar winners to totally forgettable action cinema to iconic action cinema uh, to rom-coms to children's films to really unhinged indie cinema. Where the question, what's Steven Seagal up to, has a fairly definitive answer of something offensive, probably, uh, just based on his personal brand. The question, what's Nicolas Cage up to, has a variety of responses, which include large goth sons, films about truffle pigs, uh, crow domes, and tax debt. He's got a lot on his plate. (laughs) Hollywood has always loved an eccentric, Or maybe it just like consistently produces them and so they just have to sort of turn it into a charm point. It's unclear. Either way, I've fully bought into the narrative. I have an entire shelf of books dedicated to the various scandals, murders, affairs, addictions and eccentricities of Hollywood's golden age and beyond. And look, 90% of it's probably made up, but I think the number of rumours flying around often drives further oddball behaviour. Like, do I think that Joaquin Phoenix is a bit of a weirdo? Yes. Do I think that he deliberately inflates his own eccentricities to maintain kind of an air of mystery? Also, yes. Do I think that Ben Affleck is probably a grabby little ass man who loves iced coffee? Yes. Do I think that his relationship with Jennifer Lopez is real? Yes. Do I think that the recently staged paparazzi photos where he's touching her butt in a direct imitation of photos taken of the couple circa 2003 are the most genuinely unhinged and beautiful thing in the world? Absolutely. Everything is a circle. Weird begets further weird. Cage is kind of a good candidate for this angle. He comes from a storied Hollywood family famously changing his name from Coppola to Cage in an attempt to prove that he could make it on his own as an actor. Of course, that's exactly how that works. No one's ever heard of you before. Wink, wink. But, like, I think growing up in any family that's essentially the equivalent of American royalty makes you a little bit weird to begin with. And then rumours of your eccentricities begin to make the news, and that's how you end up with a stolen Mongolian dinosaur skull and a geodesic crow dome. And initially this episode was going to be about the idea of this like weird guy spectrum that I have in my head and kind of where Nick Cage sits in the canon of weird guys. But then I was forced to say the plot of Conair out loud to my dad to remind him of the fact that we'd watched it together. And as I said the words, but then Steve Buscemi doesn't kill the little girl who sings he's got the whole world in his hands and he disappears into the Las Vegas night and we're kind of happy about that. I thought, eh, I should just write about Con Air. 
So here we are. We're going to use this episode to look at Nick Cage's Hollywood reputation at the time of Conair's release, his bizarre performance in the film, and kind of unpick a little bit of the unhinged plotline. So let's get into it, shall we? If you've not seen Conair before and now think that it is about a murderous Steve Buscemi finding Jesus through the power of not murdering children, allow me to elaborate. It's only a small portion of the plot. <laughs> Nicolas Cage plays Cameron Poe, an army ranger in prison for manslaughter after he breaks a dude's neck in a bar fight. He's ostensibly defending his wife's honour, but the guy that he killed also said, Pussies like you are why we lost Vietnam. Which I think is maybe the only time I've ever seen this specific approach to the Vietnam War on film. Not to get, like, too sidetracked, but I realise that it was an unpopular war and that the negative public opinion resulted in some pretty difficult circumstances for some returning veterans. But I don't think it was because anyone thought that the army rangers were pussies. I think it was because people kept seeing children, like Vietnamese children and American children, being blown up on TV in a war effort that was getting nowhere and doing nothing. Am I, am I wrong about this? Americans, if I'm incorrect, please let me know on Twitter or something. Explain to me this can of worms. I'm really opening myself up for a line of fire here, but like, tell me your thoughts on the Vietnam War. <laughs> Anyway, they give Nicolas Cage 10 years because his army ranger training makes him a deadly weapon. This is a direct quote. (laughs) But he's really well behaved in prison because actually he's a nice man at heart and he writes to his wife and daughter every day. He's finally paroled, but first him and his buddy Baby-O have to take a flight to a new Supermax prison from which he will be released. Unfortunately for Nicolas Cage, he's about to be put on a plane with the so-called worst of the worst, a plane full of predators. Again, quoting the film. I'm, I'm quoting the film. <laughs> These predators include Oscar nominee John Malkovich, National Treasures Danny Trejo, Dave Chappelle and Steve Buscemi, Steve Buscemi, and Marcellus Wallace himself, Ving Rhames. The unfortunate thing about putting every criminal mastermind in the world on one plane is that they're probably going to mastermind some stuff, which they do, and lo and behold, they hijack the plane. Nicolas Cage has a chance to escape, uh, but he decides not to because Baby-O is a diabetic and needs his insulin shot, which has been destroyed during the hijacking. Nick Cage then spends the rest of the movie being thwarted in his attempts to find Baby-O a needle so he can have his insulin shot. And then meanwhile, John Cusack is on the ground trying to work out what's happening. And he gets this hot tip when Nick Cage... (laughs) He gets this hot tip when Nick Cage attaches a note to Dave Chappelle's frozen corpse and drops it on an elderly couple. Eventually, John Cusack and Nicolas Cage manage to take down the criminals, but not before landing a plane directly into the Las Vegas Strip, presumably killing just hundreds of people. Also, at some point in there, Steve Buscemi finds Jesus or something. It's a lot of trouble because one man wants to really save a diabetic, and he doesn't care how many casino goers he takes down in the process. If all that sounds completely batshit, it's because it is. 
when I started watching Con Air, one of the notes that I wrote down was, who would put every single bad guy in the world on one plane? And then in brackets next to it, I wrote, John Cusack. <laughs> but the script acknowledges it too. Cage says to Babio right at the beginning that their guards managed to somehow get every creep and freak in the universe on one plane. This is explained away through a new Supermax facility that conveniently needs to be populated. Now, I didn't know much about Supermax facilities, aside from kind of hearing about them as a buzzword on crime procedurals. The Wikipedia definition of a Supermax prison facility is as a control unit prison, or a unit within prisons, which represents the most secure levels of custody in the prison system of certain countries, with the objective of providing long-term segregated housing for inmates classified as the highest security risks in the prison system and those who pose an extremely serious threat to both national and global security. Now, in movies, that usually means serial killers, like Hannibal Lecter types, or criminal masterminds, guys who pull off big heists. In reality, the majority of people who sit in supermax prisons in our current climate are people being held on terrorism charges. So in the U.S. federal system, that includes the Unabomber, uh, the Oklahoma City Bombers, and the Boston Marathon Bomber. Same deal here, except no one in Australia has actually committed any of the acts of terrorism that they're in jail for. They just planned them. Supermax prisons also house people considered to be kind of too high profile to be in the general population. So like El Chapo in the States or um, Ivan Milat in Australia. Again, lightly sidetracked here, but the blueprint for Supermax prisons is considered to be Alcatraz which was constructed in 1934 and designed to be inescapable. This is the setup for a theme because Alcatraz was so notoriously inhumane and brutal that Hollywood made several prisoner sympathetic films about it. But there was a big push for Supermax prisons in the 80s after a couple of prison guards were killed by inmates. So by the time Con Air rolls around in 1997, it's interesting to see what types of prisoners they're interested in putting in there. Most of them are the kind of dangerous types Hollywood loves as criminals because they make us feel all right about a prison. There's a serial killer who describes wearing a little girl's head as a hat. There's a serial rapist whose nickname is Johnny23, which reflects the number of uh, sexual offenses that he was convicted for. It's theatrical, but also they're the types of people that we hope prison would kind of keep away from us, right? The one that I found really interesting was Diamond Dog, who's played by Ving Rhames, who's a black power activist who blew up an NRA meeting and wrote a New York Times bestseller in prison. So it's interesting to see that even prior to the Supermax prisons being filled with largely white domestic terrorists, Hollywood was still so scared of radical black activists and prison philosophers that they would cast them as primary villains next to, like, blood-soaked serial killers. Anyway, the features of supermax prisons vary significantly from country to country and even from state to state in the US. But Lena Kirky and Norval Morris identified these four general characteristics in a 2001 paper called The Purposes, Practices and Problems of Supermax Prisons. The four features that sort of go across the board are long-term incarceration, so a lot of people who go into supermax prisons never come out of them, Extended powers of prison administration without outside review or the usual prisoner grievance processes. 
an intensive and long solitary confinement designed to isolate prisoners from each other and from the outside world. The fourth and final feature is that few, if any, opportunities are available to access rehabilitation programs that are generally sort of seen in other prisons, so like substance abuse programs, formal education, that kind of thing. Essentially, regardless of whether or not you think the carceral system is something that should exist, supermax prisons are pretty much designed to isolate and break down the humanity of the people in them. So it's not like entirely surprising to me that the people on John Cusack's crime plane saw an out and took it. Conair has this weirdly dual approach to crime and punishment where it revels in this view of prisons as kind of necessary and vital and this notion that like good men can be redeemed by staying true to their goodness. But it also shows redemption as somehow being able to be obtained through personal revelation. Like, see Steve, I wore a girl's head as a hat, Buscemi, uh, wandering free into the Las Vegas night after realising that perhaps he doesn't need to kill. Maybe because Jesus has the whole world in his hands. It's unclear. Now, I know I said this podcast was actually about Nicolas Cage in this film, but I'm giving you all of this uh, so that you have the fully muddled backdrop against which this truly bizarre performance takes place. So now that you have that, let's talk about Nicolas Cage in this movie. He's Southern. He has a mullet. He doesn't walk anywhere. He swaggers like he's Naomi Campbell hitting the Mugler catwalk circa like 1992. He answers everything with the calm confidence of a man who believes in his core that he is the most practical, powerful, and honorable man in any given room. He says, please don't do that, giving his opponent the opportunity to walk away before inevitably gutting them like a fish. It is, as with all Cage performances, totally unhinged, especially when it's kind of placed in contrast with the screaming camp that is John Malkovich playing a prison genius. So Nicolas Cage was on Saturday Night Live in 2012, promoting another wonderful Nicolas Cage film, Ghost Rider. But he was side by side with Andy Sandberg, uh, who was doing an impersonation of him. The point of the bit is not relevant. Um, But at one point, Andy Samberg as Cage and Cage as Cage say that the primary qualities of a Nicolas Cage action film are that all the dialogue is either whispered or screamed and that everything in the movie is on fire. Now, everything in Con Air is on fire. And while everyone else is screaming throughout the film, Cage barely makes it above a southern whisper. Despite being shot, stabbed, punched and blown up, Cage literally never loses his cool. Like, never. (laughs) At one point, he kills a guy who threatens to expose him as working with the police after finding a rabbit toy that he bought for his daughter. He looks at his bleeding corpse after he's just murdered this man and says, why'd you have to touch the rabbit? And then he sits back down in his seat and stares forlornly at his hands, as though he simply cannot believe that God would curse him with the fighting skills of an ancient warrior. It's really odd to think about where Nicolas Cage was in his career when he made Con Air. So by 1997, Cage was about two dozen films deep, uh, with several of them going on to be either like cult classics like Raising Arizona, which is an exceptional Coen Brothers movie, and I highly recommend it, or Oscar favourites like Moonstruck. 
his performances in every film that he made were this kind of notable sort of eccentric, garnering him reviews that hinted at Cage's talent even where the films themselves weren't good enough to kind of support it, right? So in 1995, he wins an Academy Award for Best Actor in his role as a suicidal alcoholic in Leaving Las Vegas. People tend to view an Oscars win as a launchpad for serious actors who are looking to make more serious films. Cage kind of did the opposite. So rather than taking on more meaty dramas or more suicidal alcoholics, he filmed three large-budget action movies back-to-back, The Rock, Con Air, and Face Off. All of these films are really silly, and he received like a weird amount of criticism from colleagues and film writers who viewed the move as like a really cynical cash grab. And I think this is partially where the public perception of Cage started to change. So if you're on the internet circa 2006, you probably saw the evolution of Nick Cage into like a meme. It started with this YouTube video called Nicolas Cage Losing His Shit, which was this viral supercut of every time a Cage character had a screaming breakdown. It was so viral that like I still sometimes mutter to myself, I'm a vampire, I'm a vampire, (laughs) Um, which is from a very early Cage film called Vampire's Kiss, but features really heavily in the clip. Out of context and hacked together, these kind of screaming breakdowns make it seem as though the sum of Cage's craft is just that he is a man who has a meltdown and yells on film. The rise of this kind of supercut and like viral video was combined with some very publicly odd goings on in his personal life, like the purchase of several castles or a public feud with his tax accountant and the return of Mongolian dinosaur bones. (laughs) And rather than being rewarded for daring performances, Cage was kind of lampooned for obvious acting. Now, like I said before, Con Air is a really strange film to watch, and I think part of this is because of the strangeness of Nick Cage's performance, but I also think at least part of it is because I know that Nick Cage is a little bit eccentric. I've seen his fancy jacket collection, I've read about the meaningful conversations he has with his pet crow, Hugan, Uh, for whom he built a 16-foot geodesic crow dome. Crow, dome, crow, dome. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I know these things about him and I'm kind of projecting a little bit. I've decided that the person and the acting are the same thing. So I was reading this piece by David Goodman while researching this podcast episode and I was struck by the phrase, audiences have been trained to believe that visible acting is bad acting. Now, I'd never really thought about that before. I think because once I had an actor tell me that I could never understand how Heath Ledger died for his craft because I wasn't an actor. And then I just kind of decided that the profession as a whole was garbage and I would never talk to an actor again. But there's nothing about visible performing that necessarily renders a performance as bad. And what's interesting is that Nick Cage thinks the same thing. There are hundreds of interviews with him referencing like early German cinema and early French cinema as references for his turns of phrase or his use of body language. He says, I feel that it's just stylistic choices. And this was very obviously a choice to use like a grand gesture or to go bigger. 
I've always thought that acting is an art form. Therefore, if you look at other art forms like painting, you have photorealism and you have surrealism and you have abstract. Why can't you do the same thing with acting? As unhinged as Conair feels, when he was breaking down the role for a GQ video, Cage says Cameron Crowe was really a fantasy. So growing up as a skinny kid who wanted to not be bullied, it was a version of myself of who I wanted to be at that age. And if you think about the performance as this totally kind of unflappable man who's like honourable and gets the girl and protects his friends and wins every fight, then actually Nicolas Cage has created the perfect vision of a shy 12-year-old's version of a cool cinematic tough guy, right? The point of this podcast was initially going to be about what a weirdo I think Nicolas Cage is, but actually I've really discovered that I kind of love him. He talks about acting as a craft without making it sound like wank, and by referencing his sources the same as any other artist would. And if he wants to use his post-Oscar clout to jump on a very strange crime heist movie, then more power to him. Let that mullet float gently in the breeze, baby. Well, um, those are my thoughts on Nicolas Cage and on Conair. Um, I really watched like a lot of Nicolas Cage movies before I decided to write about Conair. And one of the things that I don't think we talk enough about is, so one of his huge films is National Treasure, right? Which is about stealing the Declaration of Independence in order to save the Declaration of Independence. It's also about Freemasons. Anyway, point is, there's like a solid 45 seconds in that film where the entire message of the film right at the end is the real national treasure was the friends we made along the way uh and then (laughs) and then they immediately find the scrolls of alexandria because it turns out they just hadn't opened all of the doors (laughs) and everyone's like never mind friendship is a farce uh, because by the second one, he's divorced. Uh, anyway, if you have a particular favourite Nicolas Cage performance, or you just want to talk about Nicolas Cage's geodesic crow dome and what conversations you might have with a crow, uh, talk to me about it next time you see me at the pub, which may be never because we've been in lockdown forever. I'm not going to say Zoom me. Peace! <laughs>